So this morning, I'm going to be uh, sharing a message with you. It's going to be out of uh, Colossians 2, and uh, the verses are not going to be up on the screen this morning. So I'd encourage you to open your Bibles. You can find Colossians. The Bible, we have a rack of Bible and the Bibles in the back that you can certainly grab. And if you don't have a Bible, take that as our gift to you. I just wanted to kind of share that at the beginning here. So it was in the evening, in the middle of a snowstorm, and it was mid-January, when a young mom of two young children was taken to a small hospital as she was in labor with her third child. And so began the story of Jeffrey Scott Eckstein. I've shared with you before about being born and raised in Gloversville, about an hour from here. At the time, Gloversville was just coming out of its heyday. Once known the world over as the home of the best manufacturers of leather goods, Gloversville had been the land of plenty, even during the Depression, as the majority of leather gloves, leather jackets, and even leather helmets for the military were produced there. My family had been benefited greatly from the success of these companies. My grandfather had come north from Brooklyn with my grandmother in the 1940s, where my grandfather took a job at a CPA firm. Raising three boys in Gloversville, my father joined my, fa- my grandfather's CPA practice after graduating from college and marrying my mom. Gloversville flourished in those times. It was a time of great opportunity for many residents of Gloversville. A young man named Samuel Goldfish moved from New York City to Gloversville and worked for Elite Glove Company, one of my father's and grandfather's clients. He became very successful and was promoted to sales manager, and he moved to New York City, where he ran their New York City-based sales operation. In New York City, he met other enterprising young entrepreneurs and soon worked with them to start to produce off-Broadway plays. He left his position in leather glove sales and changed his name to Samuel Goldwyn and started Goldwyn Pictures which would be merged with Metro Pictures and Meyer Pictures into Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, or MGM, perhaps a little company that some of you may have heard of. Gloversville seemed to be a magnet for talent, especially for those from New York City. Another young man named Ralph Lifshitz worked for another of my grandfather's clients as a glove designer. Having been told that he didn't have the talent for gloves, He was moved to their necktie division, where he was inspired to design even his own neckties. He started to market these ties under the brand name of Polo and changed his name to Ralph Lauren, perhaps another name you may be familiar with. Gloversville was a city that had shined brightly by the sheer will of its people to forge success in the middle of nowhere. They built factories, and many were drawn to the prospects of opportunity. But when there was more money to be made for the factory owners by offshoring the factories, the prospects for many grew dim. Gloversville is now a shadow of its former self. It's a sad place to visit. But as a child, I grew up in the success that these owners provided as clients of my father and my grandfather. 
We were a family in the upper crust of Gloversville society. Our family had prominence at Knesset Israel Synagogue. We had membership at elite clubs, and we were regulars at fancy restaurants. We had money, and I knew that we did, even as I knew that others did not. And I was boastful, and I was arrogant about it. I'm not proud of it, but I can recall riding my bicycle with some friends for pizza at the Gloversville House of Pizza in Brits Plaza, and I had a $20 bill in my pocket. These were the days of two slices and a Coke for 50 cents. As a show of just how much money didn't matter to me, since there was always going to be more, I tore that $20 bill into pieces. I saw myself as the rich kid who found out rather quickly that having money and throwing it around drew people to you, mostly for the wrong reasons. I was also a good athlete. As my athletic abilities became more apparent, I grew in competitiveness with my brothers and with my friends. I was lauded for my prowess on the soccer field, a game that I had become passionate about. The result was that more and more, I saw myself as the athlete. So here I was, the rich kid athlete. Can you think of a worse combination? I think that part of establishing this as my identity came from the fact that I have three brothers who are all very close in age. In order to get the attention of just two parents with four kids, everyone needed to establish their shtick. Mine was the social partying athlete with lots of friends, but lacking a penchant for studying. My parents would be concerned more about me for not having a girlfriend than they would for me not showing up to class. For my younger brother, a B was him not trying hard enough. For me, it would have been cause for a gym dandy at Friendly's. So my identity as a partying, athletic, social kid who liked girls more than math directed my understanding of who I was and more often than not directed what I did. And what I did was not good. Relationships were disposable. People were there for my gain and my pleasure. Money was used to manipulate people and get me what I wanted. As I grew into adulthood, and I only use that term in terms of my age, certainly not my maturity, I continued this chaotic pattern of behavior, even as the glow of my athletic abilities faded, and I had to find my own way to fund my life apart from my parents' generosity. In some total, I was a jerk, a demanding, selfish, manipulative jerk. But isn't that what inevitably happens to everyone when their identity is tied to family expectations, your own experiences, or somebody validating something in you that is really about making themselves feel like they're the ones who are okay? But the truth is that we are not okay. When we, establish, when we strive to establish our own identity, for whatever the reason, we will always fall miserably short. And when we in inevitably do, our hearts turn angry, resentful, hurt, disappointed, and frustrated. I'm led to share this message this morning because this Thursday we will celebrate Thanksgiving. And the question keeps coming to me, what am I truly thankful for? Well, this morning, 
We're going to try to answer that question together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you are here with us, that you go before us, Father, and I thank you for each and every person who is here. You have given us lung in our breath this morning, breath in our lungs, Lord. You have drawn us here, and so, Lord, I ask that you would be heard loud and clear. Father, none of us, especially me, need to hear from me this morning. We need to hear from you. So, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would take control. I ask, Father, even the words that are written on this page, the things that I have brought forth, Lord, if they are not of you or they are not men of this time, then, Father, I just ask that they would just blow away as if they were never even said. And, Father, I ask, that what is of you, what is meant for this time, what is meant for each one of us, Father, that it would be planted in a heart that you have plowed up, that we may hear you, that it may grow to a great harvest of righteousness, of freedom, of faith in you, Lord. So, Father, speak to us now. We need you more than ever. I ask you these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, there's a lot of great scriptures that speak to God's desire that we would abound in thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 1 Chronicles 23.30, I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praises to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Psalm 7.17, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. Psalm 95.2, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God. Philippians 4, 6 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. These are all great scriptures, and we should rejoice and give thanksgiving to God in all things, at all times, and in all ways. But this morning, I want to take a look at a particular passage that tells us a lot more about what we should truly be thankful for. Turn with me to Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive today together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul is writing here to the church in in Colossae to encourage them and to warn them of being drawn into the false narrative, a false gospel that focuses on hyper-spiritualization. He does this by reminding them of who Jesus is and who, therefore, they are in Christ. We see this very clearly in verses 6 and 7. Again, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Therefore, always points to something that was just said. And here we have Paul's warning and commendation in verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The cry of Paul's heart in these verses is to ensure that the followers of Christ are not deluded. Deluded by seemingly plausible arguments. And so you may ask, what kind of arguments would Paul be talking about here? They're arguments that take the focus off of Jesus and his finished work on the cross. What Paul is cautioning against is deceivers who would use enticing words to spoil you, just as the serpent used enticing words to deceive and spoil Eve. What Paul says here in in verse 6 and 7 is the sovereign antidote against seducers. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The order here is incredibly important. Paul speaks in the past tense as he is writing to the confessing church, but we must not run past the fact that in order to have the antidote against the deceiver, we must first receive Christ who is the sovereign one. So somebody may ask, what does it mean to receive Christ? Well, thank you for asking that question. John Piper makes a great point here, so I'm going to take liberally from what he has shared on this. And he encouraged us to examine two scriptures taken out of the Gospel of John. The first is John 3.16, and everybody should know that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The second is John 1, 11 and 12. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So receiving is another word for believing. So what does it mean to receive Jesus? To believe in him. What does it mean to believe in him? To receive him. But Piper goes on to tell us that the next question is vitally important. Receive Jesus as what? Do you receive him as an unwanted solicitor at the door trying to sell you steak knives? Do you receive him like a guy coming to your house to fix your furnace that you show to the basement, close the door and never talk to? The answer to that question has eternity 
writing on it? And surely the answer to that question is, receive him as what he is. Not what you think he is, not what somebody told you that he is, not what you'd like him to be, but what he truly is. Now, the whole Bible speaks of who Jesus is, but I want to take a look at one more verse here that Piper kind of drives us to, and that's John 6.35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So here's how Piper concludes this. I am bread, I am water. If you believe, you receive me as that. Bread for your soul, water for your soul. Do you have thirsts? Your heart is a thirst factory. You wake up with thirst. You go to bed with thirst. You thirst for a thousand things. And Jesus says, I am the kind of Savior that if you would drink here, your thirsts will be satisfied. All of them. Forever. Your heart is hungry. If you eat of Christ, you won't have that gnawing craving that has ruined your marriage. It's wrecking your sex life. It's making you greedy and dishonest at work. You're just controlled by these cravings and these longings because Jesus is the true bread, and you're missing him. When you received him as a six-year-old, you received him as a ticket out of hell. You carry him in your back pocket, and frankly, when you sit down, it makes you uncomfortable. That is not saving, receiving. So Piper concludes, he is Christ, Son of God, Savior, wrath remover, sin forgiver, righteousness provider, soul satisfier and strengthener. Oh, what he isn't, what isn't he for us? Christ is all and all in all, as Paul said in Colossians 3.1. When you believe, that is what you receive, and that means that the rest of your life is spent growing into that. So all of that got us eight words into this incredible passage, so we're going to need to speed it up a little bit from here. The latter half of verse 6 and 7 tells us that the result of receiving Christ as he truly is, will have us walking with Christ, rooted and built up in him, being established in the faith, just as we were taught, which will result in abounding in thanksgiving. Knowing who we are in Christ results in thanksgiving. Many families have the Thanksgiving Day tradition to go around the table at some point during the meal to share what it is that they have been thankful for this year. Perhaps you've done that with your own family in prior Thanksgivings. And as the opportunity produce either a hallmark moment with a few shed tears, or on the other hand, perhaps a version of the Grinch who stole Thanksgiving. Think about what your answer would be this Thanksgiving. Health, family, good food, football, your job, friends. All these things are okay, but they're perishable. Paul reminds us that our thanksgiving is not tied to a what. It's tied to a who. And that who is Jesus Christ. 
when we received him for who he is and we walk in him, we are rooted in him, and we are established in the faith, then we won't just have thanksgiving, but we will abound in thanksgiving. But our faith produce, does, does more than produce an abundance in thanksgiving. It protects us from deception. We see this in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The world is full of empty, deceitful practices that on their surface present as spiritual but only draw you into worldly pursuits of indulgent self-exploration and attempt to find the sacred in philosophy, human tradition, or newfound false religions that masquerade as new understandings of the human condition. Many of these philosophies are marked, interestingly enough, by an attempt to establish your identity. Since these identities do not start with receiving Christ, their only use is to deceive people into captivity to the philosophies of this world. Think about it for a second. What is it right now that the world wants to know most about you? They want to know how you identify. That is all they really want to know. And they have given you all the labels that they can possibly muster to choose from. And choose you must. Chloe had sinus surgery this past week. One of the questions that they asked her was how she identified. But that isn't really enough for the identity crowd now. I'm just not a man, but I am a cisgendered man. According to the Oxford Dictionary, and yes, there's actually a definition in the dictionary for this, Cisgendered means denoting or relating to a person whose sense of personal identity and gender corresponds with their birth sex. I'm also white, conservative, I'm an evangelical Christian. So I'm a white, Christian, cisgendered man who uses the pronouns he, him. And the world would therefore tell me that as a result of my identity that I am a sexist, classist, misogynistic, racist, homophobic, narrow-minded dolt. And I'm only using dolt here because we're in church. Paul is telling us that the world will love you to identify in such a manner so that they could deceive you to steal away the only identity that matters. And I want to be clear here. There are only two identities that matter. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. That's it. Don't bite down on what politics, psychology, social science, critical theory, or any other false flag may tell you. And Paul tells us this clearly in verses 9 through 12. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, 
in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is God made flesh. And if we have received Christ, when we are filled with his spirit, and we are filled by his spirit, we are circumcised. That means that the old nature, the old identity has been cut away. You are no longer an addict. You are in him. You are no longer an alcoholic. You are in him. You are no longer a cheater. You are in him. You are no longer a liar. You are in him. And I'm no longer the spoiled rich athlete who is demanding, selfish, manipulative jerk, for I am in him. The old Jeff has been buried with Christ in baptism, and the power that raised Jesus from the dead raised me to a new life in him. I am a child of God. That is my identity. Paul makes this clear in verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespass and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. My sin of unbelief that drove me to a complicated, tortured life of trying to figure out who I was by the world's standards left me with only pain, regret, loss, and hurt. I was dead in my sin, but God made me alive in him as he forgave my sins, washing me clean. Let's be clear. Paul tells us rightly that there is a debt that needs to be paid for our sins. Either Jesus nails your sins to his cross with his stamp on it that says paid in full, or you're going to pay for your sin with an eternity in hell separated from God. No other system, no other program, no other philosophy can pay your tab. Paul then brings us to the last verse for today, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. A few weeks ago, we had an election. I have to confess to you, I was hopeful that more candidates that aligned with my values would have won office, both here in New York and in Washington. I was hoping that a red wave would put those who openly mock God's created order would be put to shame by us triumphing over them. Paul reminds me, and hopefully you as well, that it's not politics, it's not religion, it's not philosophy, psychology, culture, or any theories that can disarm shame, or triumph. It is only Christ. He is the one who has the power to do so. And one day soon, he will return, and he will do so.
In closing, I would encourage you to think about what you are truly most thankful for. Is it really your identity in Christ? Is it that you answered God's gracious call to surrender your life to Christ? Is it that you are in Him, walking with Him, rooted in Him, and growing in Him? And then as you go around the Thanksgiving table this year, I urge you to start by sharing that you are most thankful for having received Christ. And then share what Christ has done. That is the abounding and the thanksgiving of Christ that he calls us into. Let's pray. Father God, what an absolutely incredible portion of Scripture here that is so clearly telling us who we are in you. And Father, apart from a relationship with you, apart from us receiving you, being born again, surrendering our old life, allowing you to circumcise the dead self and replace it with a new heart, a new life, a new mind, that, Lord, there truly is no thanksgiving. And so, Father, I just ask this morning that if there's anybody here who is not in you, that, Father, let this be a day of salvation. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would draw them to the reality of who Jesus is and who they are apart from him and who Jesus desires that they would be when they surrender their life to him. Father, for others here, freedom needs to come from a worldly standard of identity and who everybody else tells us that we are. The only thing that matters, Lord, is whether you call us son or daughter. That's it. And so, Father, wipe away, wash away, the winds blow away, all these confusing things that are happening around us, and let us clearly hear your still, small voice reminding us of who you are and who we are in you when we trust you. In that, there is much abounding thanksgiving. And so we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.